I'm Father Mitch Packwell, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at sacred scripture, the Word of God, through the lens of our Catholic tradition. Now, we'd love to have you be part of the show and, and by sending us your questions and comments via email. You can do that by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now, we are continuing to take a look at the episode where our Lord goes to heal the daughter of Jairus in Mark chapter 5, as well as finishing up uh, the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. And there is a challenge for us to do not fear and only believe that faith is the opposite of fear. We'll talk more about how we can approach Jesus with more faith and, and truly encounter him in the Eucharist and the other sacraments. One of the things we'll have to do is avoid seeing that we can treat Jesus as a human being who is small-minded and we can project our own small-minded ideas of God onto him. We'll see that there's much more that his humanity and divinity belong together. Now, we are continuing on by using my book, Praying the Gospels, Jesus, Miracles in Galilee. That is still available at EWTNRC.com. That's a religious catalog, EWTNRC.com. And it is item number 52885. All right. Let's now take a look at the third meditation. This is a part two of the, this whole episode. And in fact, we will have to continue more of it, I think, next week because there's so much in this passage. But in this third meditation, uh, we are taking a look at Mark chapter 5, and we'll begin with verse 30 to 32. It says there, Immediately aware that power had gone forth from him, Jesus turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing in on you. How can you say, Who touched me? And he looked all around to see who had done it. So this is something, a uh, very important part of this. The woman who had touched him had a hemorrhage for 12 years, as you remember. And she could feel the power of healing enter her, that this hemorrhage stopped. And in fact, we, uh, uh, so that's a very important thing. But Jesus also could feel the power going out from him. There was a power of healing that he 
felt go out. And yet, when our Lord said, who touched me? The question seemed absurd to the disciples. Everybody was jostling and pressing upon Jesus and pushing around and trying to get close to him. Uh, you know, sometimes we see this with various uh, movie stars and such as that, people always pushing and such that was going on. But it wasn't absurd to Jesus because it's not the jostling and pushing and shoving that he was interested in. He wanted to know who had touched him so that power went out from him. It didn't happen when the people were jostling. Something else was going on. So Jesus continued looking to see who had touched him differently than the crowd was touching him. And so in Mark 5, verses 33 to 34, the woman, knowing what had happened to her, again, as I said a minute ago, she could feel the healing. So she knew what happened to her. She came in fear and trembling, fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So that's what happens there, that she's aware of it and he's aware of it. And when she comes to him, she does so with fear. You know, she thought she could get away with it. She had tried to sort of steal a little quick grab of his, the tassel on his garment. And she just wanted to be healed. She didn't want to bother anybody. I suspect her being a very humble, quiet kind of person who doesn't want a lot of attention on her. And that's why she does that. And that's why she has this fear and trembling about getting caught. But instead, uh, Jesus is not looking to accuse her of anything bad. He's not saying she did something wrong. And he doesn't want to rebuke her for receiving that power. It's not as if our Lord thinks, well, this is, you know, just uh, unacceptable. You can't just be stealing miracles from me. No, 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 that's not it. Instead, he wants to address her as daughter. That's how he speaks to her, he says, daughter. He wants that relationship with her. And he wants to see that her touch of his tassel on his garment was the beginning of a new relationship, a relationship that's a filial relationship, where she is like a daughter to him. That's what he wants. So then he goes on to explain and says, daughter, your faith has made you well. That this isn't any kind of rebuke. He wants her to go in peace. 
but he also wants to make recognition of something in her that is not in many people in the crowds, namely her faith. This is very important. And he wants actually not to rebuke her for getting healed, but he wants to be more active and involved in the process of her healing. So this is something that he wants to make clear, that getting the power of healing and getting these results is not the primary goal of the touch of faith. It, it, being healed is fine. Later on, she eventually died anyway. But there's something that didn't die because he wants to establish a relationship that faith with her established a loving relationship with her. And that's what he desired, was that loving relationship. And it's very important to note that she is distinguished from the crowd. She touched Jesus. The crowd is touching Jesus. What distinguished her was faith. That's what set her apart in the crowd. And it's not something that she tried to say, hey, y'all, I'm healed because I got faith. She's not doing that. No, instead, she tried to hide that. But Jesus is the one who wants to set her faith as a model for everybody else. And in fact, if anything, the way that the crowd was touching Jesus shows their love of being around a celebrity. Her touch showed faith in him and confident faith, faith at that. Now, I mentioned in the introduction about the Eucharist. And I want to propose this woman as a model for faith. This is a model for faith when we come to receive the Blessed Sacrament. A lot of times when people come to receive the Eucharist or the other sacraments, they're a lot like the crowd. The crowd that was shoving and jostling and pushing and being there. They come and they touch Jesus but it doesn't have as much impact, not because he's not powerful, but because their faith is weak. There's some people come to the sacraments because I guess you get in line, that's what you're supposed to do. And instead, the church asks us to come to the Eucharist with a prayer, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. This is the kind of faith that we ought to have, that the church 
gives us that prayer so that we recognize our unworthiness, like the woman, but also that we have faith that he can heal us like the woman. Now we're quoting from the centurion that we had back in Mark, Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, who professed tremendous humility when the centurion said to the Lord, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof and only speak the word and my servant will be healed. But this is this quote that professes both humility and expectant faith. Faith that really expects Jesus to act. And this is something that Jesus' presence within us will make a difference. When I receive Holy Communion, I want Jesus to make a difference inside of me. So if the hemorrhaging woman could have this expectant faith by touching Jesus' garments, just a tassel on his garment, how much more expectant faith ought we to have as we come to receive him in Holy Communion? to receive his body, blood, soul, and divinity within us in Holy Communion. This is far greater. Uh, his garments would be what we would call a second-class relic. But the Eucharist is way above that because it's actually Christ himself, not a relic. So we should consider that. And something for us to examine in our own consciences. What parts of my own attitude when I come to Mass and go up to receive communion, what should I seek in terms of wanting to have more personal relationship with Christ? When I receive Him in the Eucharist, I want to love him more personally and know more personally the love he has for me, the infinite love. So what would I have to do, what ought I to do to engage Jesus Christ more personally as we receive Holy Communion at Mass? What change in our attitude might be necessary so that we avoid receiving him simply out of habit, just by rote repetition, just, you know, just doing it because we go to church and we get in line. No, what can I do so that as I start walking up, I'm more in union with our Lord? And what can I do to deepen my experience of touching him so that I touch him with the faith of the hemorrhaging woman. This is very important. And think about entering into a more intimate union with Christ, a deeper relationship, so that he speaks to us as a son or a daughter, and that he addresses us as part of his family. He adopts, that's what St. Paul says, by the Holy Spirit, we receive a spirit of adoption and we're adopted members of the family of Christ. And we get to inherit with him. But we need to love him like 
He's part of our family and we're part of his family. And something that you may want to consider, imagine you're one of the characters in the crowd, just one of the people in the crowd, and you hear Jesus say, who touched me? And your faith has saved you to that moment. To ask yourself, what does the Lord want from me about the way I come to him? Instead of my jostling around and taking him for granted, would it be possible for me to ask more intimately what Jesus wants from me? What would he say to you? What would Jesus explain about what he wants from you? And then I would conclude again with the prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me, passion of Christ, strengthen me, within your wounds, hide me. That prayer of asking Jesus to be in a more intimate relationship or to pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father, either one of those, those would be great prayers for, as a conclusion to this meditation so that you enter more deeply into your relationship with Christ. This is something that we begin in this life with full hopes that we will have that relationship into eternal life and forever. Right, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back in a couple of minutes and take a look at the actual healing of Jairus' daughter. So please stay with us. taking a look at meditation four of the healing of Jairus' daughter. Now we're beginning with Mark chapter 5, verses 35 to 36. It says there, while he was still speaking, some people came from the leader's house to say, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the leader of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. So let's take a look at that. Now, there was a short delay with the healing of the woman with the hemorrhage. During that delay, the little girl died, 12-year-old little girl. So the messengers, not knowing about the healing of the woman with hemorrhage, uh, you know, arrive bringing the news. Now, something very interesting about these messengers. They haven't been with Jesus. They were back at the house. 
and they haven't really encountered our Lord. And so they assume that Jairus is troubling Jesus. They simply call him the teacher. So they look at him in a very human way. Now oh, the teacher's busy. Um, don't trouble him anymore. Okay. And they, by, because they only understand Jesus on a human level, they reduce him to a teacher whose ideas may be respectable, may be troublesome. They may have heard about some of the disputes with Jesus that already took place. Um, but they see Jesus and his teaching as merely a human kind of teaching and that it doesn't have any particular power. Also, they, by seeing him as merely human, they therefore you know, are uninterested. He would be uninterested in being troubled by anybody, um, especially people running after him with requests and petitions. This is their view. And they, these servants represent many people who think, well, God will be bothered by this. That's not the case. It's not the case. Instead, Jesus, on his part, ignores what they say. Uh, he ignores their perceptions of him and he doesn't consider Jairus' request a bother at all. Instead, as with the hemorrhaging woman, Jesus urges Jairus to forego, forego fear. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And only believe. He wants to center on the mystery of faith as a human decision. And there is that element of humans making a decision to believe. He tells them, fear not and only believe. Now, again, you have to keep in mind, faith is a grace from God. Faith is given to us as a gift from God. And that's why we call it a theological virtue. It depends on God's grace. And this is the only way we can enter into a proper relationship with God, by the grace of faith that he pours out upon us. But at the same time that our faith is a gift from God, we see here that Jesus tells people to believe. He understands that humans have a role in embracing faith, in embracing trust, and in giving up fear. That's one of the very important things. And notice, he doesn't say things like atheism is the opposite of faith. Fear is. And he wants people to overcome fear. And that's a very important point. Because a lot of times there are forces in our society who want us to be afraid 
afraid of sickness, of this, that, the political opposition, all this stuff. They want us to be afraid. They'll exaggerate. The opposition is going to do this to you, and the other side is going to do all these terrible things. Um, that's what they want. They want fear. Jesus, our Lord, does not. He wants us to have confidence. And this is a very important thing. Our faith is a mutual relationship. It's God's grace being poured out upon us. It's also our response, our saying yes to that, our saying, I do believe. It's back and forth in the relationship that we have faith. It's not all something I do, all something God does. We're in a relationship with God. It's God's initiative. This is something that we see that God takes the initiative in verse 36. Our Lord tells Jairus to, you know, to believe. But he also very much recognizes that Jairus has a role to play here. He has to make up his mind. That's why he instructs Jairus not to fear. Don't be afraid. And something that's important is the news that the daughter had died would bring any hopes based on nature to an end. Because once somebody is dead, they can't be healed. They can't be healed. They're, they're, they're dead. And so you have to say that the little girl and her family are at the edge. They've gone as far as they can. And this is something that at that point, Jesus summons more faith from Jairus. Now, it's very important because too often we are just like the messengers that brought the news of the little girl's death. We act as if Jesus were simply a human being who gets irritable and cranky and just wants to go away. And that we sometimes can be tempted to project our own ideas of God and the smallness onto him. We have to not do that. We easily forget God is infinitely beyond us. He is truly infinite and truly eternal. And he can act far more powerfully than we can imagine. That's a very important point. So given that truth about God, let's reflect for ourselves. First, imagine yourself as being Jairus at the moment that the message arrives. You're there and you hear your daughter is dead. What would you feel? And you'd have to have these conflicts in your mind. On one hand, you have a choice. Do you trouble the teacher further? Do you agree with the messengers who said, don't trouble him? 
Do you feel like you are troubling him? Or do you go and say, no, I am not going to fear. I'll listen to Jesus who said, fear not, only believe. This is the choice that I need to make. Now, our human nature, just without God's grace, is very inclined to think that we're bothering Jesus. We would agree with that. Well, I don't want to bother him. And lots and lots of people do. I don't want to bother Jesus with my prayers. I don't want to ask the Father for anything. And something that you might want to consider, what would you think and feel if you heard words saying that your daughter was dead, your child is dead, and how would that affect you? That's not a bad question to ask. And, you know, what would you think when Jesus gives you his message and says to you, instead of being upset, do not be afraid, but believe. It would seem pretty impossible pretty impossible. I mean, there are some Old Testament precedents. There were a couple boys that were healed, one by Elijah and one by Elisha. They had died, and the prophets brought them back to life. But, you know, to, a lot of times in the modern world, we think as if we're more sophisticated than the ancients. And it would be good for us to speak to Jesus, asking a couple things. What might our Lord say to you about the way that you have acted in crises of faith? Lots of us go through crises of faith. A lot of people have difficulty believing at certain times in their past. What would Jesus say to you during a crisis of faith? You might ask yourself, what are these past circumstances where I felt tempted not to believe? Where somebody announces that someone you love is dead and you stop, you say, well, not much we can do for her or him. And we should take a look at the way we react when we have these crises and speak to our Lord Jesus about those crises. What is it that might be the way to respond? Speak to him about where you have a lack of faith and yet you do have faith. Talk to our Lord about that. What would he say to you? This would be a very, very important thing. And again, end with that prayer, soul of Christ, so that you engage Christ more personally, enter into the relationship with him more deeply. This is a great way for us to pray through this text and also ask again, do I find Christ in the Holy Eucharist? Do I encounter him? 
Do I meet him and do I expect him to heal me? These would be great questions for us to reflect on. All right, let's now take a look at uh, some questions. We have um, an email from a young man named Levi. He's seven years old. He says, Dear Father Mitch, in Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 to 36, why did the Israelites ask the Egyptians for gold and silver and clothing before they left Egypt? It seems like it wasn't right to take their things. All right. Now, Levi, think about this. For a long time, the Israelites had to work for the Egyptians as slaves. You know what that means, Levi? They never got paid. They sometimes barely got to eat. They were treated very badly, sometimes whipped. And they had to do all this work to help build a couple of cities in the northern part of Egypt, near the Nile Delta. Uh, and since they were doing all this work and not getting paid anything, barely getting food, it was just for them to receive this gold and silver and clothing from the Egyptians. If the Egyptians had acted rightly, they would have already given them a wage. They would have given the Israelites a wage, but they didn't. And so this is a way to ask them for the silver and gold, and it's a way for the whole country to pay them back for all the years they worked as slaves for free. That is what I think is going on. All right. And then we have another email. This one is from Kevin in South Brunswick, New Jersey. Father Mitch, I always wondered why Jesus first ministered only to the Jews and then ministered to the Gentiles. Why would God limit the focus of his message at the beginning, knowing he wanted to save everyone? Well, Kevin, that's a great question. It really is. And something to keep in mind. Our Lord had promised Israel for centuries. He had worked with Israel. He had sent them the prophets. And they had received these promises that the Lord would save them and would send them the Messiah. So first, our Lord needs to go to the Jews because the promise had been made. And then he goes to the Gentiles because the Gentiles didn't have a promise made to them. It took a long time for the people of Israel 
to learn hard lessons, very hard lessons, about being faithful to God. They're punished many times. But after the long history of punishments and rewards, eventually the Messiah comes to Israel. And it's appropriate that this happened. So that's why we don't uh, you know, have any problems with that. It's a very good thing. And by the way, our Lord did get to us. I mean, the Gentile world is still being evangelized, but it's been pretty well evangelized. Now we have another email. This one is from Kathy. It says, Hello, Father Mitch. I am reluctant to ask, but how come Jesus told Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, I have not yet ascended to my Father. And then our Lord told Doubting Thomas, put your finger in my wounds. Thank you, Kathy. There's a difference in the two words that were used in Greek, okay? The word in John with Thomas not touching Jesus, um, you know, or, or being told to touch him, means just that, means to touch. Well, with Mary Magdalene, she was grabbing onto him. She was trying to hold onto him. And that's why you can't hold on to Jesus and get him under your control. You can touch him, but he's going to be free and you can't prevent him. And that's why he spoke about the um, need to you know, let go of her because he had to go to his father and ascend into heaven. And by her grabbing on, it's as if she was trying to prevent Jesus from ascending into heaven. And that's something that she shouldn't do. He had to go. And so that's, that's the difference. She's holding on and Thomas is just touching. So that's, that's why he said that to her. Okay? It's not too big a problem. Um, you know, some people uh, get hold of you and they don't want to let go. Well, that's what the way it was with Mary Magdalene. All right, we're going to take a little break. We'll be back in just a minute. So please stay with us. just want to let you know that on EWTN Live tomorrow night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, we will talk with Dr. John Holcraft about the call to the priesthood and how he works with the Avila's Institute High Calling Program to help candidates for holy orders in their discernment process through integral formation and philosophy, 
theology and prayer and pulling that all together to help uh, men consider whether or not they have a vocation and what they need to do to follow it. Okay? All right. Let's go back to an email here. This is from someone who calls himself just another Catholic. Dear Father Pacwa, many times I've confessed my prescription drug dependency and abuse. I believe my compulsion for the drug has become strong enough to extinguish um, my any honest-to-goodness contrition. Should I continue to confess this sin, or do I mock the sacrament and thus compound my sin? As a last resort, is it appropriate to request the anointing of the sick to aid in overcoming intractable addictions? Just another Catholic. Oh, just uh, want to let you know, I feel very badly for you. This has uh, happened to lots and lots of people that medicine that was prescribed for one medical condition ends up becoming addictive and can be deadly if you don't overcome the addiction. So this is something, A, we're going to pray for you. Um, secondly, uh, don't stop going to confession. There'll be grace that comes to you from that. You may want to go receive the sacrament of the anointing of the sick. Wouldn't be bad, but keep going to confession. But also, I mean, I don't know what kind of drug you're using. I, if I did know, I couldn't give you any advice about dealing with it. But I do hope, I really, really hope that you are in contact with doctors who understand this addiction. Uh, this, this would be very important. Another source of help I would recommend is Narcotics Anonymous. You've heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, there's another kind of group for Narcotics Anonymous because some of the dynamics are with drinking problems are the same as drug problems. Other aspects are different. And I strongly urge you to go to Narcotics Anonymous and get help from folks there. They've been through it in a way that I have not. I've never been through that. So I don't understand it from the inside. But the folks at Narcotics Anonymous do. You can find them in phone books in every part of the country. So uh, I ur would urge you to do that. I think you can go on the internet and find them as well. Strongly urge you to do that. And we'll be praying for you for sure. By the way, St. Matthew the Apostle is the patron saint of, uh, one of the patron saints for alcoholics. And there are a couple others. There's one Chinese saint who, um, I think his first name is also Matthew. He was addicted to opium and died a martyr. 
Well, he's another patron saint for people with drug problems, and so is Saint Maximilian Kolbe. I remember he was given the injection, a fatal injection, um, after being starved to death for about a month. So, and he didn't die from starvation, so they gave him an injection. Um, you need help from heaven, but you need help here on earth. And that's why I urge you to see a doctor and Al-Anon. Excuse me, well, Narcotics Anonymous, sorry, Narcotics Anonymous. All right, yeah, definitely keep in prayers. Another email here. Hi, Father Mitch. Do you have any insight into what the Sadducees thought happened to Elijah? I ask because of their unbelief in angels, spirits, and demons. Did they believe in heaven or eternal life? Matthew in Tacoma, Washington. Well, Matthew, they did not believe in eternal life. They thought that after this life, you die and it's over. Okay? That was their, their understanding. And, uh, you know, it's something where they simply expected good things in this life and they lived for good things. So you go to the Sadchi neighborhood in Jerusalem and you see they had very beautiful houses, very much like the houses in Pompeii, very nicely decorated. And same kind of decorations, except no dirty pictures right? that they didn't have. But otherwise, they were very wealthy and they wanted good quality uh, food and such as that. But they did not say, I don't know of anything from Sadducee sources about the ascension of Elijah the prophet. I've never heard a thing about that from them. And one of the things uh, 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 in regard to the Sadducees, Matthew, is that in some ways they ignored the Bible except for the Torah. They were not really interested in the prophets or the writings. They were much more interested in the first five books. And there are numbers of scholars who posit that they only accepted the first five books as scripture and didn't accept the authority of the other books. That's why they didn't believe in the resurrection. The ascension of Elijah would make no sense to them. And furthermore, um, they didn't pay attention to the vision of Ezekiel about the dead bones rising from the dead. And they didn't accept Isaiah, I, th I think it's 25, that speaks of a resurrection from the dead. And they certainly didn't accept Daniel, who said that the dead will shine, or the people who are raised up from the dead, the righteous dead, will shine like the sun, while the wicked will become an everlasting nightmare. They didn't accept any of those passages as having authority. They ignored them all. And that's pretty much what I think they did with Elijah being assumed into heaven. Because like I say, 
I've never seen any indication from Pharisees that they were interested in it. All right, and then there's another one, uh, another email uh, from Fuang in Palatine, Illinois. It's northwest suburb of Chicago. Dear Father Mitch, I need your help. I'm trying to encourage my husband to go to confession. His response is, quote, If God created me in his image, how could I be a sinner? How could anyone be born a sinner? Why would he create a sinner in his image? I thought that he was a Roman Catholic, but I begin to believe he's a Lutheran Catholic. Fuang. Well, Fuang, he's a, a couple things. He's certainly confused. Um, and he might be trying to avoid going to confession. A lot of people do. Now, this is something that um, he is created in the image and likeness of God, but we are fallen. For instance, you buy things in the store. You buy things in the store, all kinds of things. And these items, especially if they're mass produced, these items are all meant to be about the same. But every so often you come upon something that was made in the image of a prototype, but it's got a scratch or a dent in it. Now, this would be an analogy for us. We were made in the image and likeness of God, but we fall. And, you know, by his standard, ask him, I don't know what political party he belongs to, but given the uh, tensions today, ask him if the person leading the party opposite him is a good guy. Do you think that he is free of sin? Because quite frankly, on both sides, people accuse each other of being really bad, really bad. So ask him if somebody that he, you know, may politically dislike, or maybe an actor or somebody, if you really dislike them, they're made in the image and likeness of God. So why are you so critical of them? You don't have a basis for criticizing anybody. That may help him to realize, you know, maybe it's not so clear as he thought. Yes, we're made in the image and likeness of God, but we have fallen. We have these flaws and we do sin and he sins. And especially if you're his wife, you might be well aware of some of his sins in a way that he's not. If you have children, they may be aware of some of his sins as well. So uh, he needs to go and maybe he needs to make a good act of contrition, a good examination of conscience than an act of contrition. That may be helpful. Um, I have another email here just came in. Uh, Father Mitch, our priest says it's wrong to ask for an increase of faith. 
Recently, the gospel was about faith the size of a mustard seed, and the apostle was rebuked for asking our Lord for an increase in faith. Our priest raised his voice during the homily and ordered his audience, never, never, never ask for an increase of faith. He said we were given enough faith when we were baptized. I guess I'm old school, Father Mitch, because I've, I have to work on my way every moment of every day to make it to heaven. It isn't a one-time plea for me to ask for an increase of faith, hope, and trust, and love. Uh, Veronica, I don't know why your priest was upset and why he said that. You know, our Lord told us to ask for faith. We should seek an increase of faith. We need to trust him more and deepen that relationship. And that relationship is something that is given to us as a gift. So of course we need to have an increase of the grace. It's not, you know, you're given, you know, uh, in a small form, a seed form of faith and baptism, but it needs to mature and grow through your whole life and deal with all the different crises. So no, 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 I disagree with them very strongly. That's not old school, it's just following the gospel to ask for faith and you will receive. All right, we've run out of time. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by His peace. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, we ask you to remember to keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill. We have a lot of bills around here. We need your support in paying for them. So please do so, because the network is brought to you by you. God bless and thank you. Mm -hmm.